This is With You in the Weeds. Do you ever find yourself stuck in between what you know to be true and what you actually experience? Or the difference between where you are and where you want to be? Well, if so, you're in the weeds. And like weeds, those tough places keep coming back. I'm Lynn Rausch. And I'm John Tennant. As counselors, Lynn and I deal with those weeds all the time. Together, we designed this podcast because we want to be with you in those weeds, kind of like God desires to be with us. Hmm. Now, that idea will change everything. So we hope you'll listen in and let us be with you in the weeds. Let's get started. Hey, here we are back with you in the weeds. We are podcasting from the heartland of the United States of America. We're in Columbia, Missouri, where there's a Wendy's on every corner and a cornfield just north of us. Uh, We're a team of counselors professionally trained and all that stuff, which just means we know when we don't know what we're doing. And uh, my name is John, and I'm with Austin. Hey, guys. Yeah, we are uh, wanting to just do a kind of a, we're doing Q&A. So just kind of briefly about us. I have a family. I'd say it's a great family. Who's in your family, John? <laughs> I have two daughters and a wife and two son-in-laws, and I have a boy, uh, my Labrador Retriever, who's seven years old, and I love the guy. Uh, I am currently directing the Ministry of Counseling at The Crossing, and Austin, you and I are partners, and we are peers, and we learn from each other. I was a pastor for a long time before I started doing therapy, and I love both sides of the fence. And that's kind of what we bring to the mix with our team. Yeah. And you're, you're similar. Similar. I'm a little bit, in terms of stage of life, a little bit behind you. I've got uh, a wife. Her name's Polly. She's great. Three kiddos, 12, 10, and 7. So I'm kind of, dare I say, in the weeds of the parenting life. You've gone a little bit ahead. But similarly, have an MDiv uh, from Covenant Seminary. Just recently got my degree in counseling, just like you. So I'm following in your footsteps, so to speak, and love doing this podcast. And if you've been listening, we're glad that you've been listening. Hope you find it helpful. And uh, especially today, um, let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing. If this is one of your first times listening, uh, we're glad you're tuning in. Um, If you've been listening with us, you'll remember that we just finished up our Grounded in Grace series. And that's where we tackled important theological topics like the gospel, justification, sanctification, heaven, the the big boys. Big words. Yeah. And and it was pretty intellectually and theologically rich. And and we did that because we think those are crucial anchors to hold on to when we're in the weeds of everyday life. Um, And so if you haven't gotten a chance to listen to any of those after this episode, I'd encourage you to go back and do so. But Father John, I'm going to print a hat and a t-shirt for you, because that's your new nickname. No, Johannes Padre. <laughs> that's right. Actually backward. Padre Johannes. There you go. Tell us, tell the people, what are we doing today? Uh, so the questions that we're going to tackle today, we're going to uh, tackle marriage, mm-hmm. and we're going to tackle pornography. Mm-hmm. Those are the two biggies that we're going to talk about. So uh, let me just jump in, and let's take marriage. Yeah. Um, we have... Sorry, let me let me give you the question. How about this? Can yes. I read the question? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Here's what somebody wrote in, and this is such a great question if you're listening. Thank you for sending this. And John, we're going to start with you because you are the, quote, resident marital expert here. Here we go. I know you're shaking your head. You're not. Well, it's only because I've been married longer and made more mistakes. I get it. Okay. I'm not, I just don't have this down. But you have a degree in marriage and family therapy. So there you go. Here's the question. At the heart of most of our marital conflicts, it seems as though my spouse expects me to meet their needs that I cannot meet. How do I handle that? 
Ooh, that's like every couple that I meet with. And it's my own heart. I think everybody comes into marriage with this assumption that this person is going to meet needs that I have that I have not yet articulated, but they're there in the background. And the assumption is this will work. I love this person and they're going to do this for me and I'll do this for them. And we're just going to be like two bugs in a rug, like really happy together. Usually the two bugs become ticks, um, mm. two ticks and no dog is the old line uh, where you're just trying to draw from each other certain needs that you have. And those needs are legitimate. But one of the things that, that I've learned is the kind of needs that we bring into marriage are often, very often, not the kind of needs that can be met in marriage. Yeah. So what I hear you saying is those needs are good, Yep. but it's a question of who and what and where are you looking to get those needs met? You got it. I mean, in our marriage class, we break this down between little kid needs, which is what we get from our parents, and they're like real core and they're real deep. Like, am I loved? Do I matter? Can I be my own person? What are my boundaries? That kind of stuff. Can, can I be my own authority? Um, how do I handle imperfection? in my spouse, in me. Those are all like little kid needs that are meant to be addressed as you're growing up, as you're being parented. The problem is not that, and I say this to couples, you guys don't have problems. Like Biff and Trixie, you guys don't have a problem. The little kids inside of you, like they don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And that's your problem. And it's identifying the kinds of needs that you bring into marriage. Because little kid needs tend to be lifelong, very deep, and very intense and demanding. Uh, and no spouse is designed to meet those kinds of needs. They can relate to those kinds of needs, and you can share with your spouse, hey, you know, I feel really lonely inside, even though you're with me. I don't know where that's coming from. That's just where I am. Yeah, so it seems like, and something that, that really you've taught me how to do, and I've started to see even real life in person, helping realize, okay, this presenting issue, the conflict, let's not uh, delegitimize it. Let's validate that, but also realize there's a lot going on under the surface. A ton. And there are things that you are bringing in that maybe you don't even know. So if you're listening to this and maybe you're in a conflict and your spouse isn't meeting that desire, consider, okay, what are the needs underneath the desire that you want from them, so to speak. Does that seem right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I will tell clients oftentimes when they're in intense conflict, can you learn to look through the conflict to the need or the desire that your partner has that's behind that conflict? Mm -hmm. um, so we bring these needs in and they're legitimate and they're God-given. But because we live in this Genesis 3 world where everything's imperfect and broken and tends to fall apart and go in different directions than God designed, about 99% of our sin boots off of having these God-given needs met in unhealthy ways. Yeah. Can you say more about these unmet needs and even, you know, these desires, all that? This is great. Yeah. So I'm going to break this down into the three Ds. Um, there are three basic ways we can handle needs that we have. Desires, let's call them. Uh, one, we can indulge them. And the Bible calls this lust. And lust gets a bad rap in the Bible because Jesus lusted. Like he said, I earnestly desire like to be with you. Like when he says things like that to his disciples, the Greek word behind that is lust. Mm -hmm. 
But lust that's unhealthy, that should be sequestered and managed well, is what Dan Allender calls desire gone mad. Mm. So it's like capital L lust. Mm -hmm. Like I have to have this met right now on my yeah. terms immediately and yeah. you are the one to give it to me. Yeah. So, so when you say Jesus lusted, it's not that kind of lust. The right. What you're saying, the sense of that lust, that it's longing, it's desire, those are the good things. But then just like you said, Allender, the capital L out of control desires, take, take, take. Jesus never did that. Yes. That's something that we do. Yes. Yes. So, you know, we'll come into a marriage and we demand that our spouse love us a certain way, do certain mm -hmm. things in a certain way, uh, relate to us like we want them to, make us feel good. And usually the common parlance for it is, well, if they would just blank, fill in the blank, then I'd be okay. I'd be happy. And that's really a good desire, but you're demanding that it be met in your way at your time and right now, immediately. I, I love that, the, even that phrase demand, and that's almost like a good diagnostic. So if you're listening, you know, think through, is are there things that you are demanding of your spouse? If so, that might be kind of a little bit of smoke, you know, where there's smoke, mm -hmm. there's fire. So that's great. Demanding, expecting, yeah. building that like bitterness and resentment because you know what? They never mm. do this for me. They mm. always do this and I don't like it. So that's, that's the D of indulging mm -hmm. our desires. That's the, what the Bible calls unhealthy lust. Okay, the second one is you can squash your desires. And basically this is refusing to acknowledge legitimate needs and desires. And you end up trying to suffocate yourself. It's like, well, if I just didn't have this need and if I didn't want this thing and I'm bad for wanting it, then everything would be okay. And oftentimes in a marriage, it's a partner uh, who will go along, who, a partner who wants to squash their desire, they see it as bad. They'll just people please, and they'll just go along with whatever because they want everything to be fine. Hmm. I also wonder, I'm hearing this and you can speak more to this. I wonder if this plays out even in conflict. Like, let's say somebody brings up, a spouse brings up an issue. You always do this. You never do this. And, you know, just going for it. And then maybe the other spouse tries to squash that, tries to say, no, we're not going to do this. Stop being irrational. Be more logical. Think through it. Stuff like this. So this is indulging desires and squashing desires that happen inside of us, but they also boil over into conflict. Absolutely. In a lot of marriages, you usually have a giver and a taker. And the giver... Uh, oftentimes is the person who doesn't see their wants, needs, and desires as legitimate and to be fought for and identified, named, and pursued. So they'll just give to make the other person happy. Mm, I'm thinking about the Enneagram. If anybody's in Enneagram, this would be like the two, like the helper. Let me just give, let me serve, let me do that. Yeah. That's what you're talking about. And there's so many ways that that can be rooted in so many like historical family of origin patterns that we cannot get into. Right. But oftentimes a giver marries a taker because the taker is like, ooh, she wants to meet my needs. I like my needs being met. And so the giver's like, ooh, he likes it when I give things to him. And the taker's like, well, I like it when you give things to me. And then that blows up once they get married. How so? Oh, the giver just begins to die inside and they become isolated and they feel badly about themselves and they can never give enough. Hmm. And the taker 
really never feels loved because if the giver gives what the taker wants, the taker basically takes the position of, well, you've just given me what I should have had in the first place. Yeah. So there's always a net zero. Yeah. So you, we've talked about indulging desires, squashing desires. I smell and I hope there's the third way. Is there a better way that you've seen, you know, to help couples manage this? Yeah. The third way is we live into our desires. Okay. Say more. Yeah. So this is like the psalmist. Um, how long, O Lord? So the psalmist is very open about, I have these desires, I have these longings, and Lord, they're not being met. How long do I have to go with this? And this is like living into the desire, meaning it's legitimate, it's there, it's God-given, it's a good longing, but this other person is not God, nor are they the parent I never had, Mm -hmm. and they can't meet that. They may not be able to meet that. They may not want to meet that. Can I live with that longing and that desire not being fully met in the immediate moment? And can I take that to Jesus and can I wait? Hmm. So that's living into legitimate longings without demanding that they be met right now. How, can I ask a follow-up question? How have you seen people handle that? Like when they're doing that well, what's, what's the cost of that? And where have you seen the benefit? of that. Let of, me go to, let me go to grieving. Um the cost is you lose. You you literally have a longing that is not met. I mean you might really long for a spouse to be able to identify your emotions and really get you and really understand you and really know you and accept you with all of your flaws. You might really have a longing for that. But they may not be able to give it. They may not want to give it. They may not be aware of it. Maybe they weren't raised to notice things like that. So you're looking at a long, long, long journey of not getting that need fully met. So the grieving process is really important. Mm. Like acknowledging this is legitimate. This is what I want. It's there because God wired me for it. But okay, I guess it's not going to be met now, Mm -hmm. but I really am losing. Now, can I let that go? What have you seen happen if and when people can let that go? Why is it worth it? It's worth it because you move into sadness instead of bitterness, anger, resentment, and more of a kind of conflict-based reaction. An angry kind of adversarial, like, you don't give me what I want, so I'm not giving you what you want. And so it becomes sort of a Mexican standoff. Hmm. If you move into sadness... Now you're free to say, this is really legitimate. I really am losing something in this imperfect world. I was designed to have this, but in this imperfect world, it's not going to happen in my time frame mm, man, necessarily. That's... And I'm sad about that. Yeah. And the Bible says, I'm pulling this right from the Bible. The Bible says that sadness is the way that you move through things that you don't have or that you have lost or that you may never get. Mm. So you feel like you're losing. Yeah. We're not designed to live with loss. I'm even I'm even now thinking about the verse, you know, Isaiah 53, which is foreshadowing Jesus. The apostles said this verse was about Jesus. It said he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and he bears our grief and he carries our sorrow. And so almost like that's an invitation 
and an assumption that Jesus knows we have these sorrows and these griefs, particularly in the area of marriage, and give them to him. You know, my, my mentor used to be big on that. He would say, you know, Jesus is called a man of sorrows. And he would look at me with a twinkle in his eye and he would say, you know why? I remember the first time he introduced me to the concept, you know why? He said this, because Jesus did life the right way. And I really think that that's underestimated in the Christian community because yeah. there's so much to be sad yeah. about. Yep. And it gives you freedom to let go of the things that you can't have and wait for God to meet those needs in his time frame and in the ways that he wants to meet them. That's, and I'll just throw this yeah. in there. A lot of the ways that he meets those needs are through other safe people and friendships. It's a huge mistake, and I think you would agree with me on this, to come into a marriage thinking, oh, my partner's going to meet all of my needs, all of my friendship needs, all of my emotional needs, make me feel really good. Mm -mm. No, this person's there for you to minister to and to love and to walk with and to know your needs and to know where you're limping or yeah. broken, yeah. but not fix it. Yeah, I hear don't put all your eggs in one basket necessarily. Spread it out, have some good friendships, maybe have a mentor uh, figure, whatever, and you have your spouse if you're married, all that. Can, can I say this? Let's pretend like the person who asked this question is sitting across from you in a room. What, you know, rather briefly, what advice would you give them to say this is something that you could start doing in light of all that we've been talking about? What's one thing that they could take with them to begin to maybe ease up and let go of, you know, some of these longings and needs? What would you say to that person? It's very counterintuitive. Mm. Um, you know, this might sound cheesy, but take a U-turn. Like, in other words, look at you. Like, what are the needs that I have that I need to take responsibility for, mm. that I'm burdening my partner with? And how can I start to give myself those things through God and through other people? Like, where can I get those ingredients in other places? And just start looking for ways that those little tiny seeds of bitterness that grow into resentment, that grow into difficult, demanding differences between partners. And I'll give you an example. I go to bed at night, you know, hey, Paula, I'd really love to talk to you about something that I can't get off of my mind. My wife, well, you know what? I just have had a long day. I'm just going to go to sleep. I'm too tired. Now, that's a disappointment. That's an unmet need. And what the enemy will do is he will come in and say, hmm, see, she doesn't really care for you that much. And she's not that attentive. And you don't really get your needs met by her. She's a problem. That kind of thing in seed form is something you need to start to name and identify. No, she is not a problem. She's tired and I have a need and maybe it's not met by her right now. Can I take that to Jesus? Can I wait? Can I find another time to talk to her? Can I yeah. go to somebody else with that need? Yeah, that is so helpful. And I'm thinking of the scripture. I think it's in Ephesians 6 where it says our enemy is not flesh and blood but the spirits, the powers, the principalities, all that. So that's just a really good reminder to, hey, look, the other person, there's some legitimate needs there, but they're not the enemy. So maybe hold on to that, take that to God, all of that. Um, John, there's so much more that we could say, but we got another question. Can yep. we do this? Let's take a break, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about porn. 
We'll be right back in a jiffy, but we want to take a quick pause to say thank you. Thank you so much for listening in. If you like what you're hearing, think about texting this episode to a friend. And find us on Instagram at With You in the Weeds. All right, we're back, Austin. You said we're going to talk about porn. So let's go right into porn camp. We're answering your questions today. Uh, here's the question I'm going to throw at you. Such an important one, uh, because I think so many people can relate to it. Uh, personally, I think pornography is like the 900-pound gorilla, like in the room in most churches on Sunday mornings. So this person asked this question. What advice would you give to someone who's addicted to pornography? Uh, this has been a struggle of mine for such a long time. I know why it's a problem. I want to stop, but I can't seem to get any long-term freedom from it. Close quote. Yeah. So there you go. You're on. That's such a good question. And, you know, I won't claim to be able to say everything on this topic. And, you know, I'm not even quite sure to what degree this would help this person. But, you know, um, yeah, uh, gosh, maybe three things um, come to mind. Um, first, I think pornography is the symptom of a deeper issue. And what I'm not saying is that pornography is not a problem. It is for so many reasons. It's harmful to the person consuming the pornography. It's harmful to the people, men and women, especially the women who are in the videos. All that's true. And yet, any and all pornography use is a symptom of a deeper issue. And that deeper issue is a lack of connection. Connection with others on a horizontal level, but especially connection with God. Run with it. Yeah. You know, G.K. Chesterton, he was this English theologian and author in the late 1800s. And I think he hit the nail on the head when he said this. Every time a man knocks on a brothel's door, he's really searching for God. Hmm. And we can update that every time a person types in a web address or clicks on a TikTok video or goes down that rabbit hole, they're searching for God. In other words, what they're looking for is sexual pleasure and release through prostitutes, pornography, whatever. That's that's the, the horizontal, shallow desire. But the deeper desire is that they're actually looking for something or someone deeper. And we would say, and I think it's that connection with God. So so pornography use is not just about seeking out sexual pleasure. It's it's a little bit that, but it's more than that. It's a sign of a deeper issue. So what what I hear you saying is there is a desire below that surface desire. And that deep, deep desire is a search for God, even though a person may not name it like that or recognize it as such. Um, it Because, and I, I think I can throw this in there and you can riff on it a little bit. Sex is the deepest part of who we are. We are made in God's image, male and female, and he created sex to dramatize the kind of vulnerability, intimacy, and being known and accepted and shame-free that he wants to have with us. And so it strikes at the deepest part of someone. So when they're looking for a sexual release of some sort, it's mm -hmm. always connected to that deeper, my gosh, I want to be known, accepted, delighted in embraced. I want to feel powerful, like I can give to somebody. It's all that stuff. Yeah, it's all that. And that's so good. And gosh, there's so many things we could say. I think I'll say this and then move on to the second thing. Uh, every single person is created with a sexuality, the capacity to have and give and receive sexual pleasure. Mm 
Not everybody has been called and will be able to indulge and act on that desire. We'll say sex is the verb. Jesus was a sexual being, but he never had sex. So let's distinguish that too. And yet what you just said, which is great, is every, it all points to that deeper desire for that connection. So that's that's the first thing I'd say. Here was the se- here's the second thing. So you're, thing. okay, stop. So yep. you're saying that if somebody's not married and they're single and they're not having sex on a regular basis, let's say, they're still a sexual person. Absolutely. They are still infused with sexual desires that yes. are good? Yes. And sex doesn't start like, okay, I'm married now, now I can start having sex. Right. Or I'm in bed with this person, now I can start having sex. Yep. Sex is on a continuum and it starts when we're born. Yep. And there is nothing wrong with the person who does not or is willingly does not indulge that. Culture yeah. will say that you are, there's something wrong with you, yeah. you have to, but you're not. I'm glad I almost went on. <laughs> I'm glad you slowed down and clarified that point. That's absolutely true. Um, second thing I would say about pornography. I think there's a better goal than managing pornography usage. Again, don't hear what I'm not saying. I, I really do think it's important to get a handle on managing pornography use. You know, if you're scrolling and you're searching for huge chunks of time and going into deeper, deeper, more uh, violent and destructive uh, videos, things like that, that's a problem. And it has all sorts of negative implications and repercussions in your life and the life of others. I mean, think about it. If you're doing this, you're not available for your husband or wife or kids or friendships. Uh, your your job performance is going to take a hit. Uh, men, especially, sexual performance will be impacted. You know, more and more men are finding that they don't have the ability to get aroused by their wife or their partner because they've been so desensitized by pornography. Major research studies on that 100%, that are secular. 100% secular research. I'm, yep. Women. Your self-image is going to take a hit because you're going to feel pressure to do what you're seeing in those videos because, and and I've heard this, it breaks my heart, but I understand it. it. I've heard from women, it's what men like. I want to do these things because it's one men like, or, uh, you know, maybe if you're a woman, you might become so hyper-focused on what your body looks like in order to come across as more pleasing to a man or women. Eventually, you, everyone, it's just going to graduate to more and more intense, damaging, and destructive forms of pornography because you're going to need more and more to get the same high. What is it? The law of diminishing returns. So all of those reasons are why managing pornography use is important. And yet, if that's all you do, all of those efforts are going to be temporary and you're going to miss the heart of the issue. So I've talked a lot about what not to do. Well, here's what we do. Instead, I think a better goal is to begin to explore, pursue, lean into, and learn about this connection. Learn what connection means. Connection with God, connection with friends, connection with a spouse. And here's one, we've been up in the clouds. Let me land this a little bit. One practical way to begin pursuing this goal Ask yourself this question. And John, I think you might have asked me this years ago in our very, very first counseling time. I've asked this to lots of people over the years. What is your pornography use doing for you? What's it doing for you? Yes, I know there's there's likely a part of you that hates it and feels ashamed of it and wants to stop. Absolutely. But there's also a part of you that longs for it and wants it and looks forward to it, even just for a moment. It might be your only form of escape or release from a deep, deep pain or burden or wound you've carried most of your life. Absolutely. 
you know, and this part of you, like what you said, John, maybe it has your best interest in mind, misguided, mm -hmm. but has your best interest. But, but ask that part, why this? What's it doing? You know, and if you're honest with yourself and what I've heard from people over the years and we've been talking about it, it provides all sorts of things. It, it provides the feelings of sexual pleasure. It provides the feelings and the sense, even though in the long term it's not true, but the, the felt sense of being in control. I can get what I want, when I want, how I want. It gives feelings of being valued and desires. And, and here's what I would say to that part of you. I'd say all of those things, the sexual pleasure, the control, being valued and wanted, those are pretty good things. In fact, I'd say they're God-given goals, God-given desires, one that you are made for and are good and are, uh, you're in the right direction to pursue. But then I would say you're looking for them in the wrong place. That part, again, bless its little heart. It's doing maybe the wrong thing for the right reasons. You well, know, that... we, we always hear doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. Let's flip that. It's doing the wrong thing for the right reasons. I really like that. I think that's great. It's like a really good part of you that's trying to do a really good thing, but it's misguided, it's not thinking correctly, and it ends up getting you into more trouble in the long run. Yeah, and it, it's almost like this part needs a software update. It doesn't realize the damage it's doing. It's like a bowl in a china shop going around doing these things, not realizing the impact. And so instead, I wonder what it would look like to pursue these longings in different places in different ways rather than searching it through pornography. On and on I could go, but, but here's the point. Don't only manage the symptoms of pornography. Pursue the deeper and better goal of connection. And a good way to start is to get what we've just been talking about is getting curious about that part of you that is seeking out. Um, okay, gosh, last thing. Let me say this quickly. And then John, I want to give you the floor because I think you have some great things to say on this. Here's the last thing I'd say. You can't do this alone. And this is manage pornography, fight pornography, get to the deeper issues, all that. You can't do this on your own. If you do, you're going to fail. And maybe I don't even convince a lot of you. Maybe not today you're going to fail. Maybe you won't fail tomorrow. Maybe not even next month. But in the end, you will because you and I were hardwired for connection. And so maybe just find one person you can share your struggle with. You don't need to have all the answers and you don't need to have them fix things for you. Just share it. Find a group where you can be open and honest about your struggles and make sure that this group is not shaming you for your behavior, but is encouraging curiosity, validating some of those deeper issues and the roots of it. Okay, John, I said I wanted to hear from you. I'm putting on the spot. Would you mind sharing just a little bit about what this has looked like over the years in your integrity group? And clearly, I don't want you to give too many specifics or details because we want to honor confidentiality, but you've been doing this for a long time, and I've had the privilege of working with you in these groups for a while as well. So tell our listeners the, the difference that you've seen being a part of a group like this can make regarding struggles with pornography addiction. Yeah, the difference that I've seen as I've worked with uh, a very, very special group over six or seven years, we've started or we started the group at the outset by saying you cannot heal yourself. You cannot be your own recovery person. You can't be your own counselor or therapist. You can't be your own healer because God has designed us to heal in community. And that's kind of a foreign concept for people. And it's counterintuitive, especially if you're into pornography, because the thing that keeps pornography usage going like any other sort of 
overattachment slash addiction is secrecy, isolation. Like this is my thing. This is what gives me my hug. And I have to become vulnerable if I'm going to talk to somebody about how this works in my life. However, what we have found is as people rehearse over and over and over again the dynamics of their story and where they have been wounded and how pornography has become their go-to compensation to deal with their wounds, that slowly over time, as they are heard, listened to, and loved, and love has specific things to it. We talk about the four S's. Like, as I tell my story to another person, they see me, they really get me, and I'm not alone anymore. And you're not shamed. And I'm, oh, we say in our group, this is a no-fly zone for shame. Because shame fuels all of this. Uh, We can get into that in a minute if you want to. But it's a big, big, big thing. It started in Genesis 3. um, And it's self-condemnation that belittles, accuses, and isolates, and basically puts somebody in a corner and insists that you are worthless. And yet in your group, and maybe you can say a little bit more uh, and land the plane here, in your group, we're giving people a space to reverse that dynamic. When they can share and be vulnerable, they are not shamed from themselves or others, but they are welcomed and validated and seen. They're seen. They're safe to talk about the stuff that they don't talk about ever or with anyone else. They're secure. This information is not going anywhere. I can count on the fact that I can come to this group and these people, and they're always for me. Uh, And it's comforting. There's a soothing to it because, well, I don't know how it works. I just know that God designed us to not be alone. And when we get connected, we feel better. We feel good. When we're isolated, alone, lots of bad stuff happens. Yeah. And and maybe this is the last thing I'll say. Uh, Perfection is not the goal. Oh, no. And what can happen is, and what I've seen happen in this group is if and when you slip or relapse or whatever you want to say, rather than go down a huge rabbit hole, uh, they now have experiential categories to remember who they are, to remember, you know what? Yes, I screwed up, but I can get back up and I can keep going because I am not my addiction. I am not all these things. I am a son or daughter of God, and I can keep going because of that. One of the questions we, we ask guys to think about every single week like if they have a relapse or, you know, their behavior doesn't reach their goals, right, of not acting out. One of the questions we push every week is, how did you experience being God's son when that happened? Because almost always, if we get to the point of acting out, we isolate ourselves from God. But this is what we push. He never isolates himself from you. You'll have consequences But Jesus is right there, arm around you. Hey, what are we doing again? Like, what's the pain here? Are you willing to look at the pain? I am with you. I will never leave you. And it's that constant of being loved that provides the platform for continual, and I'm going to say this, a lifelong journey of growth, a trajectory. So we don't look for perfection because that's the very thing that condemns us. 
You know, we ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now guess what we have? Mm-hmm. The knowledge of good and evil. So we judge others. We judge ourselves on a constant basis. And we're not God. So we're not able to handle that well. Right. Yeah. That's so that's so helpful. Um, and so, you know, we're kind of wrapping up this episode. Let me just summarize. You know, that's a great question you ask. What advice would you give to somebody who's addicted to pornography? The three things we talked about. Pornography, remember, it's a symptom of a deeper issue. There's a better goal than managing pornography usage. It's get deeper connection with God, especially. And then lastly, don't fight this alone. Um, I've loved this episode. And if you're listening, thank you for so much for these questions. Please keep them coming. Um, just in the last couple minutes, I, I would love to share a new segment we're going to be introducing onto the podcast. I'm really excited about it. It's called Stories in the Weeds. Um, what is this? Well, well, this is a chance to hear from real-life people who've been through counseling. You'll get a chance to hear what brought them to counseling, what that process was like, what they learned. And right now we've got uh, people lined up to talk about their experience, what it was like in marriage counseling, uh, dealing with the loss of a father, grappling with the impact of divorce, and more. Uh, But we're not only interviewing clients, we're going to interview other counselors as well. Obviously, John, Lynn, and myself were counselors, but but we really think there's wisdom in bringing in other people and perspectives uh, to to the issues, to the table. And so we're going to be asking counselors their take on when they think it might be time to go seek out counseling and when it's not time to go. Um, things like where and how they know if their clients are growing and and when maybe it's time to end, all those things. Um, Right now, we've got counselors talking about eating disorders, about somatic bodily experience and more. Um, So I'm really excited about this. Uh, We're going to be releasing one of these Stories in the Weeds episodes after every one of our series. So the next time you pick up, we're going to have our first Stories in the Weeds next week. Um, And the last thing I'll say, why are we doing this? Well, three three main reasons. One, we just want to demystify the counseling experience for people. So if you're still a little worried about like, what's this counseling thing? Or if you know someone who's like that, this would be a great episode to send them. Because again, they get a fly on the wall of, of what a counseling experience might be like. Second thing, we want to just help equip you to know if and when and why it might be time to seek professional counseling or maybe not. Uh, And then lastly, we think this series is just going to continue to help normalize the struggles of people like you. So hope all that makes sense um, and can't wait for you guys to tune in next week for that first Stories of the Weeds episode. So for now, we're going to sign off. John, I always love doing this today, but or the podcast together, but today was especially fun. I don't know why. Hey, yo, it was a lot of fun just being with you. And everything you said was great. Can I add one thing? One like thing. the stories in the weeds, we talk about these concepts. We want you to hear from people who have to live this out in shoe leather. Mm. So this next, this story, you're going to hear the first one is a guy who lost his father. Mm-hmm. And what was that like? And we want you to kind of see how this plays out. That's great. Great being with you guys today, John. Thanks for being with me and we'll see you next time. All right. Hey, thanks for giving us your valuable time and allowing us to be with you in the weeds of your life. We want this resource to bring you hope and help bridge the gap between where you are and where you wanna be. You can find our email on our podcast page. We'd be interested to know what you'd like to hear more of. Until next time, remember, God is with you in the weeds.